0: Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 19 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Katherine Hildebrand, founder of Good Clothing Company, a U.S.-based manufacturing facility that does small batch production and is dedicated to rebuilding the U.S. apparel manufacturing industry. In the interview, Catherine shares how to educate consumers about ethical production processes, why doing smaller manufacturing runs and selling direct-to-consumer can be better for everyone, and why U.S. costs are starting to compete with overseas.
1: Wages, uh, particularly in China, are, are almost the same now as they, as,
0: as they are in the U.S. Before we jump into the interview, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you enjoy this episode, you can help me get bigger name guests on the show by leaving a rating on iTunes. With more ratings and reviews, it gives the show leverage in convincing higher value guests to do interviews, which brings you even more valuable content. It only takes 60 seconds, and I'd really appreciate it. Visit sfdnetwork.com slash review to leave your rating. And as always, thanks so much for your support and help. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash 19. Now, on to the interview with Catherine. All right. Welcome, Catherine, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I'd love to have you start out by introducing yourself and telling everybody a little bit about who you are and all the wonderful things you do in the fashion industry.
1: Okay. Um, well, my name is Catherine Hildebrand. I am um, the CEO and founder of Good Clothing Company, which um, is, uh, well, it's a multifaceted facility, but we we focus on small batch production, full development, um, launch, consultations, uh, all of that good stuff for uh, independent and emerging designers. We also do large-scale manufacturing with some pretty big cats out there, and we're pretty excited of, to be um, you know, heavily involved in the reshoring movement and uh, job creation. Um, we also uh, launched our house line, Good Apparel, uh, which you can find online at weargoodapparel.com, because uh, we kind of thought if you're Going to be telling designers that they can do this. It might be good to put your money where your mouth is. And uh, so, hence, good apparel, just as an example of sort of, it's it's our take on on what we like and uh, sort of a an inspiration, hopefully, to those out there doing it. And, yep, it can be done.
0: That's awesome. So I have a ton of things I want to kind of touch on. But the first one I want to start with, which is something that's pretty prominent on your website, and you mentioned it just in this intro here, is um, your perspective on manufacturing in the States and reshoring um, and bringing jobs back. And I would love to kind of dig into a little bit of that. It's something, I'll be totally transparent, all of my experiences in manufacturing is is overseas. And so this is a space I'm not super knowledgeable in. And so I'd love to just have you talk a little bit about like, what are you seeing in the industry? Obviously you have two facilities and you manufacture product for, um, designers and brands here in the United States, but talk a little bit about like your perspective and what you see in terms of manufacturing locally and then how that compares to some of the stuff you see overseas. And and why are you so passionate about that? and, And what's your perspective on, on all of that?
1: okay so it's probably um the best place to sort of start is kind of why i i think this is important and and from my own personal perspective so uh before i ever got into manufacturing um, i was a tailor and i've been a tailor for um over 30 years i started in the industry at 16 um, under an italian tailor apprenticing and later moved on to own a few different shops and um, was a mom at the same time and raising kids, and um, at that time uh, we we had not we had we were starting the offshoring movement, but it, it certainly you know wasn't what it became uh, a, you know a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. And um, fast fashion wasn't really a thing at that time, so there was you know the cost of cost of apparel and the cost of uh, the services related with apparel um, was was more in line with. Certainly not being wealthy, but but living a a fairly decent quality of life and um at some point that began to decline and um, For the life of me, I couldn't figure it out. You know, how how did I go from? Making a decent living to not being able to get a raise for 20 years Mm -hmm. and so yeah, so I started taking a look at that, and and what I realized was that there there was no incentive for someone uh, to to invest ten dollars in a pant hem, which by the way had been my pant hem charge for uh, gosh I guess ten or fifteen years at that point. Yeah. But there was certainly no reason for them to invest in that when they could buy the pants for ten dollars.
0: Mm.
1: So. This offshoring movement, what it did was, um, that coupled with manufacturing, you know, a fast fashion, it really just devalued, um, everything associated with that garment, whether it's the services or sadly, you know, the hands that, that touch that garment. And that goes beyond the, you know, those that we have been sort of taking advantage of in, in not all places overseas, but in many, Mm -hmm. um, and even here on our own soil, because that that comes back this way, and um, that was kind of an eye opener and um, really really upsetting to me. So there was this social piece and this um, piece that was just like this whole thing is just totally wrong. I mean, this isn't cool. You can't do this to people. And then there was the these you know this opportunity. For myself to, you know, manufacture a, a very modest line that I had at the time, because what I was selling was too much for me to make, but it certainly wasn't massive, um, and I kind of needed to go to bed every now and then, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, where do I go? Where do I go and make 50 of something? You know, because it's a lot to sew 50 of something by yourself yeah. when you're running a tailoring shop. So. And there was nothing available, and I thought, well, that's nuts, that's crazy. You know, how do these, how do, how does new business start? How do these new designers get off the ground? Where do they go? So I started doing a lot of investigation, and everything that I found out really bothered me uh, because what I found out was that we basically, I don't think necessarily 100% knowingly, but uh, we, we, you know, took away a, a half a million, a million jobs from. U.S. workers in favor of doing things um, very, very cheaply in abundance. And in, in doing that, we also ripped away a lot of opportunities for new and emerging talent here. So we just wanted to be a part of um, offering an alternative, uh, offering um, a service that at that time when we started basically did not exist. I'm really glad to see so many other cool companies out there, you know, kind of taking on and doing the same thing. And uh, we wanted to do it with minimums that made sense, like 10, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 10 makes sense <laughs> when you're starting out, and, uh, and we wanted to offer them, you know, full, you know, soup to nuts, everything that you need, to, what do you need, and we, and we do it. So we started with that, and um, it was hard going, uh, you know, getting started in the sense that it was a challenge. But what we found with this there's this massive, massive need, way bigger than we could have ever, ever imagined, which was encouraging but overwhelming at the same time. And I think to answer the last part of your question is that to me that was an indicator, at least at that time, that there you know there is this movement and there there is this need for this, not only from our clients, but the consumer is changing and the consumer wants to be invested in, in something that you know has a, has a better story behind it. So I see that shift. Um, I answer emails all day every day and it, it's the core of what we talk about. I think we have a long way to go but I think we've seen a lot of progress in the last five years.
0: Yeah, there has been a, a tremendous shift, and I, I see it as well. Um, one of the things I'm really curious about is, you know, I know we lost all these jobs with the offshoring of manufacturing, but one of the things that I've heard has is a challenge is to, um, to get the laborers the workers here in the U S to do some of those tasks, whether it be like production line sewing, um, or, you know, maybe something that's not super glamorous and, and, it can be hard. I've heard, this is not a space I work in, but I've heard from multiple people that it's hard to get those people to do those jobs. You know, what have you seen with that and what has been your experience with getting the actual workforce to do the manufacturing and the production?
1: That's a, that's a really good question. And it's, it's actually, it is, it's a valid issue. Um, uh there's it's important to talk about the fact though that um it isn't it isn't a glamorous job however not everyone out there is suited for wants to has the desire to the inclination to whatever do a glamorous job absolutely yeah plenty of people out there who would be much happier with a chainsaw in their hands you know dropping (laughs) trees yes so Right. And so, so there, is that, there is that sector of people. I happen to be one of them. I'm a, I'm a real hands-on worker. I, I will break a machine down and get dirty and, you know, put it all back together. And, and that happens to be sort of who I am. So I, I understand that mindset. But we did. We lost an entire generation of people um, in, you know, not just the generation that many of them have died off, but the generation that we were bringing up, you know, the, ge- the generation that we're bringing into this, whether it was from a trade perspective, because the jobs weren't there to train them, or if it was from a design perspective, because even our our design teachings have shifted and changed so much. There's way less focus on construction and mm-hmm. much more focus on tech pack creation and how we ship it off. So it has been a challenge, um, but uh, I'm always one for a good challenge. So, <laughs> um <clears throat> We what we did was we set out to figure out how how can we how can we offer paid training to uh, to potential potential workers our potential um, employees and uh, so we were after it took us some time it was not an easy task but yeah. after quite some time we were able to um, uh, uh, be effective and in receiving uh, a large training grant from the state of Massachusetts, it is it is a matching training grant, so we'll be matching dollar for dollar in um, a quarter of a million dollar training initiative, which actually happens to launch next Tuesday. Oh wow, 15th.
0: that's so! Congratulations, that's really hey. exciting.
1: <clears throat> We're super excited about it. So this is intended to create 45 new jobs um, over the next two years, and it's a paid training opportunity. So. Wow. Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah, we're we're stoked about that. I mean, we need the you know we need these jobs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So we if, if they're not there, you gotta go make them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow, that's so wonderful. You're doing so many amazing things, and what a cool concept. I mean, I, I I love that you pointed that out. It wasn't something I had really thought of, but it's like you know we we lost all of the manufacturing for so long that. You know, we lost all the labor force just due to their age, um, but there was also a big gap in these these people who are coming into the labor force and they're not getting the training to go into something like this. So what a great initiative to put that type of a program together. Um, I mean, I, I've chatted with some people who have said, you know, they some of the people that they work with, they got their start way back, you know, working on a production line. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of value to be said for – what you can learn and the skill to be attained Mm. in that process and like literally getting your hands dirty. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of a nerdy engineer too and I love to build stuff and I would be the one out with a chainsaw. So I, I can get that side of things. I know that that's also not for everybody, but I think there's something really interesting to be said about just getting your hands dirty and kind of learning from the ground up and understanding that whole behind the scenes process. I mean, it's fascinating to me.
1: It's hugely fascinating, and and you know, understanding how to execute something and why something works mm-hmm. helps you to even further understand understand the design process. Yeah. you know, and there's a lot of intellectuality that goes along with what we do. I mean, it's not all just hands dirty stuff. There's this is very critical critical thinking that goes on with with many many phases of what we do, but you know, I I, I always say you know to to anyone. I mean. If it all goes to hell in a handbasket, I mean, I've always got this talent. I've always got the skill. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, that's never, ever going to go away. Yeah. Never, ever will I not be able to be a master tailor. I'll always have yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Eyes go, my eyes go, you know, whatever goes, I, I that's always going to be with me. So, yeah. uh, I love yeah.
0: that. Yeah. I busted out my surgery the other day after I hadn't used it for four years while it was in storage while we lived in New york City, and i w- I shocked myself with my hands just knew exactly what to do like i did, it was so automatic, and you're right, those skills don't go away you they get ingrained in you and you have yeah. them forever yeah it's
1: it's definitely muscle memory it's it's like riding a bike yeah. for sure, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, cool, well, I think that's so amazing and um, uh, where where can people learn more about this program that you're running like if someone out there listening wants to be involved or, or do you already have all the slots filled or So we're, we
1: do have the slots filled for our first training round okay. starting August, uh, August 15th but these are 30 every 30 days. Oh. So every 30 days we're taking on three new people. so there's a content, you know there's always a new opportunity. Um, you can go to goodclothingcompany.com and contact us via our contact sheet on there. Um, we do have two, uh, you know, we have job applications and internship applications on there as well. Submitting a job application and letting us know that you're interested in the training is is um, is a great way to go. We, we are also working with our local uh, workforce investment board, obviously, in our career centers and, you know, we have a, we do have a bit of a list, but um, that that doesn't mean we don't have, we don't still have thoughts. We do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. That's great. And I'll put that in the show notes. Um, and that should get, that goes for about two years. You said it's going for two years. For yep. two years. Okay, that's yep. fantastic. Awesome. Um, well, really cool. And congratulations on that launching next week. That's really exciting. What a great time to chat with you. Um, oh, thank you so much yeah okay so i 'd love to dive a little bit now into sort of the whole production process that you guys go through with your clients. so I know you said you do um, you have some some big cats out there and you do some larger scale production um, but let's if if, if that 's okay i 'd love to kind of talk about the more startup independent designer who has an idea and comes to you guys and wants to get started and like walk through that process with us. So where do you see most designers approaching you? Like where are they at in the process when they come to you and they say, all right, what do I do next? Do they have a napkin sketch? Do they, you know, what do you see most? Um,
1: a lot of, <laughs> a lot of very directionless with great, 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 great ideas, but not really understanding the direction, which really makes a lot of sense because mm. uh, that's not typically something that is either available or that they even knew that something small batch existed. Yeah. Um, typically, we get well. Everyone is required to fill out a production application. Um, we love their sweet emails, and we get a lot of them, but we always send you back to the production application because we have to have that. It, we, it, it, it allow, you know, It's what enables us to know what you need and whether or not we're a good fit or you're a good fit for us or where you are in the process, and it helps us to guide you. But typically through those production applications, basically what we're hearing uh, probably around 75% of the time is, I've been working so hard on designing this collection. I know exactly what I want. Um, I'm a little bit confused about how to go about it, um, but but I know I know what I want to do, mm-hmm. and and so for those people we typically start off with a consultation, and we basically, you know, kind of suck out <laughs> <laughs> the last year of design school, all the things that you really 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 need to know to go to manufacturing and we give all of that information to you in an hour, we answer all of your one-on-one questions, we set you up with contacts and get you on the road. Um, And if you're coming to us with just a sketch or an illustration, uh, and as long as we have your specs, which don't don't need to be too complicated, some measurements associated with whatever your medium is, um, we can take you full development and all the way to the floor. Uh, other people that we're seeing are, and that would be the, sort of the latter half, are smaller, more established companies, uh, but they're still doing you know, sort of the indie approach and sustainable direct-to-consumer vertical model, which is really the, the way to go. Um, they're looking to keep their uh inventory under control but at the same time uh be able to access runs of say one hundred to two hundred per style. Yeah. So it's kinda kinda that mix.
0: So I two things I want to ask about um one you say um, you know taking this indie approach and going direct to consumers is really the way to go I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about your perspective and what you're seeing in the market with that as opposed to selling wholesale to retailers um, what are you seeing and why do you feel like that's the direction for designers to go now
1: well it's, it's a combination of different things I mean we are all sort of, kind of brainwashed to, to think what, you know, what the value of a garment is, unfortunately, what a retail price of a garment should be. And so that it kind of changing that whole dynamic that's taken place over the last 20, 25 years is that's got, we've got a ways to go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just all accept it. Uh, it's, it is what it is. Um, consumers are willing to pay more than they were willing to pay, say, three years ago, uh, but we're not a hundred percent there where they're willing to pay, I think, what would, what would support wholesale costing for US-based manufacturing, particularly mm-hmm. when it's anything under, say, a thousand. Right. Um, that's one. And then two, I mean, sadly, because, you know, I'm, I'm a little older, so, uh, <laughs>
0: shh we won't Uh, say any numbers
1: (laughs) um i uh you know i'm i'm sad to see the brick and mortars go um but it is it's what's happening you know i i i i like the tactile piece of things and i i i happen to just be old enough that's sort of the way i always shopped but um that's going away and uh you know so if you if you want to keep your inventory under control Keep your your production runs lower. Your costs for goods are going to be a little bit higher with U.S. manufacturing. Not much. We're actually fairly competitive mm. uh, with overseas. Yeah. Um. But per unit, when your when your runs get a little bit lower, they're going to be a little higher just because they have to be. Sure. Yeah. From from a manufacturing efficiency standpoint. Yeah. Um. But direct to consumer supports that. It supports you know it's su- it supports that and your profit margins are actually a little bit better than they would be in the traditional uh, mm-hmm. traditional setup. And I, it's a great way to go. And it's how people are shopping.
0: Yeah. So I just want to further explain um, what I think you're referencing here for listeners out there who might not quite understand. You're saying if, let's say you manufacture something and it costs ten dollars then right. you, as the designer, need to make some money off that. So then, and we'll do basic Keystone pricing, which is where you just double and you double. And so if you pay $10 to get it made, then you sell it to the retailer for $20. Then the retailer sells it to the consumer for $40. So your $10 item just quadrupled essentially, versus exactly. if you go direct to consumer. You know, maybe you had to pay a little bit more for production because you were doing smaller minimums. So let's say you paid fifteen, then you can sell it to the consumer again using the same Keystone markup for thirty. So the consumer is actually getting a better deal. You're still able to make your profit the same that you would have been able to make it going through a retailer. But that's where the numbers start to shift. And it makes it a little bit more attainable for the end consumer to get that item, that small run production, support that independent designer if they buy directly from them and they don't have another middleman in the middle.
1: Exactly. Because we've got plenty of massive companies out there that are handling all of that wholesale space for yeah. us, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and, uh, and and you know it, 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 the the value that you're adding across the board when you're either structuring your business that way or a shopper or consumer shopping that way or a manufacturer is offering services that support that that there's value across the board. There's value to the the designer or the creator because they're keeping their initial financial investment to something that's attainable yeah. or manageable, yeah. and the consumers the consumer is getting. Uh, a quality piece of good that they know supported something positive, something ethical. Hopefully they know that. Hopefully they're, hopefully the designers working with a company like that. And um, we're reducing our footprint, you know, I mean, it's, it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of good stuff out there. So we're seeing some great companies out there who are, and we're working with them who are who are um, building their businesses that way, and they're being and they're very successful.
0: Yeah, and I love the idea. Um, I think you've said it a couple times now, but like um, controlling your inventory. I think was that the term you used? Managing, Managing it, yeah, it and just not yeah. you know not overbuying initially because um, it's it's. I I've had conversations with other people but it's it's a, it can be a quick downward spiral if you overbuy, not just financially, but also emotionally. You have all this inventory you're sitting on, you didn't sell it. It can be really draining. It can be hard to kind of pick up and keep moving forward from there. And so if you start a little bit smaller, start a little bit slower, like you said, you might pay a little bit more for your product, but if you're selling direct to consumer, you can still have your healthy profit margin or your fair profit margin. Um, And it can just be a little bit more sustainable in the long run to go that direction. Absolutely,
1: and if you think about it, let's say, let's say you make 10 of something that they're $15 a unit, and if you make 100, they're, they're 10, mm-hmm. Let just, to, to just use some easy figures. If you make 10 of something for, 10, for 15 a unit, you're going to spend $150. Yes, you've paid $5 more a unit, but you've spent $150. Mm-hmm. If you make 100 of something for $10 a unit, well, now you're out of grant. It's quite a big Do you difference. even right, It's very different. Ha, do you know if that's going to sell? Have you tested the market? Have you have you tested what your consumer engagement is going to be? Mm-hmm. You can make 10. If it's really popular, go make 100. Yeah. But and then the other piece of it is is where do you put all that stuff if it doesn't sell? Does it go in a landfill? I mean, oh, where yeah. does it go? Yeah. 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 Think small, keep it all.
0: Oh, <laughs> I love that. Um, and so, so what are you seeing? Um, I mean, you just were talking about like testing that and like seeing what your your customer engagement is with that product. Like, what are you seeing? Some of the brands that you guys working that you guys work with. Um, Doing in terms of doing these small batch tests, and then you know how are they doing that? Are they putting up websites and and just trying to get people that way? Are they doing pop up shops? Like how are they actually reaching the consumer to test the product and then decide? Okay, you know what that went great. This one didn't go so well. This is what we'll do for the next round of of production.
1: Right. So interestingly enough, um, and and we test this ourselves with our own with our own house line. Yeah. You know. our e com site gets a very different engagement than our pop-up shops do. So we have certain pieces that do extraordinarily well at our pop-up shops and then others that do extraordinarily well at e com. We had a couple pieces in our first collection. Ah, they didn't fail, but they certainly didn't do as well as uh, as the rest. Um, I, I think it's you know you're putting it up there on e comm or you're taking it out to pop you know doing the pop up shops or you're having, you know, some sort of an event and it's, it's pretty easy to see. I mean, if there, if everyone is going to the left side of the rack, that's probably the one <laughs> you want to make again, make it another colorway. Don't invest another pattern. That pattern is working. Make it in black. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and so, and I love what you said there too, of this whole, like, don't invest in another colorway or invest in another pattern, just invest in another colorway because a lot of that upfront cost is in sort of like building some of the fundamental building blocks for these pieces. And so a really great way to very cost effectively add another skew is to just do it in another colorway. Um, maybe do it in a print if, if that works for you or if that Um, you know, fits that style and not having to, okay, invest in, because I think what scares people a lot is, oh, I have to invest in all this upfront cost and then I'm only going to make 10, but then you can Mm -hmm. reuse that in so many other ways down the road to recoup some of those initial startup uh, costs. Absolutely. And the
1: reality is, is that whether you make one or a hundred thousand, The the startup costs are there. I mean, they are. You have to develop it. You've got to make a pattern. You've got to source the fabric. You've got to make sure the sample works. You've got to resample pattern modifications. If you plan on making it in any more than one size, you are going to have to grade that pattern. I mean, those pieces really are there. So start with a collection that's manageable. Start with four to six pieces, six to eight pieces. Test the market. See what's working. Now take that development that you invested in and t- development is typically in the fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred dollars range. I mean, we're we're a little less uh, because we focus on it a lot and it's what we do. Um, uh, but uh, but it, it's that's still that's a chunk of change, and so take that fifteen hundred bucks and make it work for you as many ways and as many times as you can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talking about costing and you just you just threw out a few numbers there and and um, you mentioned earlier that you guys are actually quite competitive when it comes to um, you know u s manufacturing versus overseas um, and you don't have to share any specific numbers but I like to me that seems really especially for some and, and I know it depends on the quantity but like how are you able to to do some of that? where are you guys being really smart and cost effective to make your production, your manufacturing really efficient so that it isn't, oh boy, it's three times the cost to manufacture here with you or with some other local, um, factory than it is to go overseas or what, what, what does that really look like? okay so
1: well it's it's a variety of different things that we we decided needed to be done to to keep manufacturing accessible and so what we did was created a number of different revenue streams that were really needed some of them with higher margins that would be the offset that we needed for the lower margin that you get in manufacturing us which Mm -hmm. is typically like eight percent if on a good day net wow oh yeah it's low very low Mm -hmm. um uh, we So we have that, but we have the balance of other revenue streams that we have, whether it 's sample making and things of that na- nature that do afford you a bit better uh, a bit better of a margin okay. but the other piece that 's really important to understand is that you know wages uh, particularly in china ha- are are almost the same now as they as, as they are in the u s yep. and so the 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 competition. Um, with China, at least from a wage perspective, from a from a from a um, uh, sort of mastery perspective, because they've really been, you know, they've they've automated and they they've been kind of killing it for the last 20 years. Uh, we we have a bit of ways to go there, but from a wage perspective, that that whole piece is that that gap is kind of closed. Mm. Um, that and then we we really practice lean principles. Um, you you have to add value to your end product or to the end product that you're giving to your client in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, sometimes it's purely about money. Um, and so for, for those clients, then your, num- your, your run numbers need to be larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many clients, it's about speed to market. It's about quality. Uh, It's about uh, our efficiencies in, you know, going from development to full scale production in, say, 60 to 90 days, which we do all the time. Yeah. Just being clever and creative. We know what the challenges are. So that's easy. Once you identify the challenges, it's how do do you go, you know, take one thing at a time. I always talk about, like, unbuild the house and then build it back. Identify all of the issues that you you're, you know you're going to face, and you're going to face a hundred more. Mm-hmm. And how how do you tackle each one of those things? So we've just been creative about it.
0: Yeah. So on that note, um, what are some of the biggest challenges, and like how are you guys overcoming those? Well, we talked about one
1: um, finding skilled labor. That's yeah. That's probably that's probably um, probably one of our that's actually our greatest challenge. Okay. Um. <sighs> Uh, still this mindset, you know, sort of competing with this mindset that uh, everything should be cheap, super, super cheap, mm. um, you know, uh, working with clients to understand that none of that makes sense um, by, you know, it, we, and not in a rude way, but if you break down, you know, a t-shirt and how long it takes to make and the cost of goods associated and whatever, and you find out that if you got a dollar ninety nine t shirt how much if someone was actually paid and yeah and and when they you know they hear that they they would not you know, I, I wouldn't work for twenty seven cents an hour either. I guess it is a little bit ridiculous for me to expect that pricing. But yeah. um yeah, I think it's I think the biggest challenge honestly is just sort of breaking through this this, you know, struggle that we have with, with pricing as as a culture in this nation and then finding and then finding skilled workers or or um, training skilled workers.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, um, so it's interesting because it's almost like you said. Sometimes the designer comes to you, and they're the ones that needs a little bit of education and training on like why the price can't be two dollars. Um, yeah, and and. Someone else I had a conversation with made this comment, and it was so it was such an interesting like visual for me they 're like if you really step back at like a ten thousand foot view of a garment and think about all the different hands that actually touch that from who manufactured the thread? Who manufactured the the button, the label, the hang tag, the poly bag, the fabric? And then all those little pieces and components have to come together to create this finished product. Like, it's quite complex. And how are we – and this wasn't even the context in what she was explaining that in, mm-hmm. But but I look at it with what you just said. How are we as a consumer or a designer to look at that garment and the – you know, dozens, perhaps more hands that actually touched every little piece and part of that. How are we to expect that that should cost $2 or even, you know, an $8 dress at some of these fast fashion places? Like, how does that even make sense?
1: I, 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 no doubt, great analogy. And secondly, I honestly can't, still can't wrap my head around it. I, I can't, it makes zero sense to me You know, I think about how we're willing to pay like $5 for a coffee, but we really, (laughs) really, really question if this garment that we're going to wear, hopefully for 10, 20, maybe more years, Mm -hmm. you know, and that cost of that garment is probably in the same ballpark as that coffee. And and there's this huge, like, you know, thought process about
0: it. I mean, it's serious, it's an issue that's yeah, I, that's crazy analogy to think about. I mean, I just got the chills like, yeah, I'm, I want to dress for the same price as I want a large latte. <laughs> like,
1: and, and it's, that's, that's really a thing. Yeah. Go figure. I know we, it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the shows like what you're doing, these podcasts, like what you're doing and the activism that you're involved with. And so many other great people in the industry, I think who really are beginning to, um, educate and change this this conversation. You know, a lot of the people who, um, oh, and I was one of them, who who are really looking for things for next to nothing and who aren't really thinking this process through, honestly just don't know any better. Sure. Right? So if you got got 100 people in a room and 80 of them just don't know any better and 20 don't care, well, the 20 are never going to care. But if you get through to the 80, well, 80% of your consumer base has changed. And it's my hope that, you know, continuing to have these conversations, continuing to be involved with, you know, um, mission-based business, uh, socially-based movements, and uh, education and awareness, and just shit chat chit-chat, chit-chat, this is what we're doing. I, my hope is that, um, you know, I, the next generation that comes be my, behind me sees a fruitful and rewarding opportunity and just a better quality of life that's that's more engaged and and more mindful.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, like what you said and it's come up a couple times in this conversation is um what maybe we don't know any better and and it's almost like what we've been trained to know or what we've been trained to expect. And I see it a lot in the fashion industry in terms of designers who are going to work for these really big brands in New York city or these other fashion hubs and the wages that they're getting offered are borderline abusive sometimes. And it's, it's because they've been trained to believe that that's just what it is. That's mm-hmm. just what I, I can get. Um, I mean, some of these wages to work for really big names in New York City I'm not going to say any names or numbers but they're not even I know who they they're are. not livable wages. <laughs> no. um, especially for New York City and and but what's happened is that the industry's gotten trained this way the designers have been trained and it's the same exact parallel that we're talking about here where the consumer has gotten trained to expect that really really cheap piece of clothing. Um, and so it's just a matter of the education and the retraining and to step back and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to buy this dress for $7 and maybe I'll wear it twice, but looking at some of these items as almost investment pieces, because I know for me, if I buy something for $7, I don't really care about it. I don't take care of it. Mm-hmm. I maybe you don't even ever wear it. And I'm actually not guilty of that because I, I don't, I don't buy something and not wear it, but I, I don't take care of it the same way as I would take care of a dress that I bought for 50 or $70 or $100. And so mm-hmm. I think it's this whole process of people valuing what they pay for. And instead of paying for this disposable stuff, you know, think twice about where you're putting your dollars. And, and maybe buy a little bit less, but buy stuff that you really love and that you're going to take care of. And like you said, have for 10, 20, 30 years. Maybe you can even pass it on to someone uh, beneath you.
1: Absolutely. And then you've just created this huge, you know, boost in that whole entire supply chain in terms of wages, in terms of opportunity for new designers and new business, because there's now value and there's value has been injected back into that. And and that's what creates a sustainable business model. The nonsense that's been going on in the last couple of decades, that's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. The, The planet can't handle it. People can't live off of that. They can't survive, uh, whether it's financially or spiritually. It's not sustainable. It doesn't work. Yeah. So let's just, you know, it, it's not hard to make the right choice.
0: Yeah. So if once you know. Yeah. Yeah. Once you know. So, once you know. Yeah. If I'm a designer out there and I'm, I'm going into production and I'm making, you know, my four or six pieces and they're selling for X price, which perhaps arguably is going to maybe feel expensive to some consumers like what are some ways you're seeing these designers educate their customer educate the consumer and help them understand you know this is the value of this item and here's why it has this price tag on it so can you give any tips to to people out there listening who maybe are stuck in this spot and can't figure out how to talk to their consumer well, break it down. I mean, there's you know,
1: there's, there are some great companies out there that are fully transparent. Show you the whole process along the supply chain, what it costs for development, how much the seed cost, how much it costs to gin it, how much it costs to, you know, mill it. Blah blah blah. Uh, break it down and be fully transparent about that because in showing your transparency and costing, um, it's it's just like a non obnoxious approach to educate someone. You know, with the entire process of building this garment, that's one mm-hmm. and then and then just simply talking about it and obviously targeting that demographic who already cares. but sure. yeah, just talking.
0: So would that maybe be, um, I mean, talking is great and I can do that on, you know, if I'm a designer, I could do that on a couple different platforms, but perhaps like having a page on my website that's specifically dedicated to the process and like what really goes into these garments um, and maybe like a a printout, if I'm at a pop-up shop, like to show people, Hey, this is kind of what the journey of this garment looks like. And here's all the different pieces and parts that go into it. Is that something that you see people doing? Am I interpreting that correctly?
1: You are actually. I should have probably clarified talking because I didn't just mean having the conversation. I meant being, you know, being expressive, whether it's through written word, it's through podcast, conversation with friends, yeah. you have an interview. Uh, you're putting up an about page, you're, um, you know, sending out email newsletter, you know, your, your weekly or monthly emails, newsletters from your company talking about the new things you're doing, the great initiatives you're seeing in yeah. uh, your local region, why you sourced this textile locally and why it's worth 70 cents more per yard and uh, what that has, you know, what buying this skirt did for these thirteen people over here in Pittsburgh, whatever yeah. you know, those interesting stories that the consumer can engage with and can really feel like they can relate to. It doesn't seem far away and abstract and you know intangible. Um, that's a way to get bring people in. It's it's genuine and authentic and it's not a bunch of hype and you know unnecessary fluff. It's the real story and you know don't underestimate your consumer either. Uh, what I have come, I will tell you honestly the, the biggest thing that I've learned from this entire thing is that people are innately good and um, it, and if they're not necessarily being good at the time, it's usually it's usually because they just didn't know mm. So uh, give people the benefit of the doubt and and get out there, man and, and do your thing.
0: Yeah, and one thing I'll just like to—I'd re- like to remind some of the people out there listening—is I think that as a designer, um, it can be easy to sort of discount the interest of well, why I sourced this, or you know, what really went into the manufacturing of this product, um, and and we can look at that and say, well, you know, my customer doesn't really care. But I think that's shifting, and I also think that people are genuinely fascinated with the behind the scenes stuff. They don't always want to see the perfect, um, you know, glamorous front side of things, I think on some level, they're even more interested with the behind the scenes stuff. So tell them those stories, bring them into the process with you. And people Mm. love that, um, more than I think you, unless you've actually had those conversations with your customer and you've shared that and you've gotten their feedback and their reaction, you might not realize how interested most people really are in all of that behind the scenes process.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, and so I think as a designer, you know, bring people into that story because they love it more than I, if you haven't brought them into that story yet, they love it more than I think you'll realize. Um, and, and some of the stuff that you might think is, Oh, that's not that interesting. That's boring. Or that's something I do every day. A lot of people are actually really fascinated with that. So tell that story, let them be part of the journey with you. That's such a important learning process, um, and engaging process, uh, for you to go through with them. So, so don't be afraid to tell them the good, the bad, the ugly, and all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into to building your brand. And um, you know, with maybe some filter on some of that stuff, but right. just a little, just a little. <laughs> so, um, Catherine, this has been so much fun to chat with you, and I'm really, really thrilled about everything you guys are doing and um, the programs you're running to help you know train some of these people to to do the labor that we seem to have lost over the past few decades. Um, is there anything? else? You'd like to share with everybody listening about what you guys are working on? Uh, uh well, we just we just expanded um, our Fall River
1: facility, actually merged two facilities, so we're we're happy to talk about. You know, we're happy to announce that we've had an expansion and we'll be expanding again. Awesome. Uh, here in the next couple of months, obviously the training program is uh, is big on our big on our favorites. Uh, Good apparel. We'll have another collection coming out in the next uh, three, 45 days or so. We're excited about that, uh, but. Basically, we just get to go go to work every day and really, really, really love what we do and really, really love the community that we're involved in. So, I, Heidi, I really seriously thank you for this opportunity. Um, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and love what you're doing.
0: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, I do have one last question that I end with. Um on every episode and it tends to stump people a little bit so if you need a second to think about it feel free to take your time but what is one thing that people never ask you about working in fashion but they but you wish they did
1: oh my gosh (laughs) oh let me think That's a really, really, really tough question, Heidi. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you one of the things that I wish most people who were coming into the world of fashion knew and understood fully because I think it can be very disenchanting um, is that I think that there tends to be this sort of mystical, magical thing, <laughs> this <laughs> fashion world, this you know, great outer space of fashion. Yeah. And uh, we tend to, I think, uh, I, I was guilty of it in my youth, Tend to look at this as a, as a as more of a celebrity kind of driven. I I don't know if the I can't think of the words to exactly describe what it is that I'm trying to say right now. But I think what I'm trying to say is that it's. It's it's not all it's it's not as, it's not all about you know glory and uh, sitting around in, in beautiful fine threads and having cocktails and talking about your next collection. This is really really hard work.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and
1: uh, it's, it, I I think um, there's a misconception about that. So. Yeah, I would agree with you.
0: Yeah. Um, fantastic. So Catherine, where are the two places? Cause I know you guys have your, your, um, uh, manufacturing website and then your clothing website and I'll put both of them in the show notes, but just tell everybody quickly before we shut off here. Awesome.
1: Um, so you can go to goodclothingcompany.com for manufacturing inquiries, jobs, internships, or training opportunities And if you want to check out our house line, you can find Good Apparel at weargoodapparel.com.
0: And that's w-e-a-r goodapparel.com. Fantastic. And I will put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Catherine. This has been really, really fun to chat with you. And congrats on everything you guys are doing and the progress you've made. And really look forward to watching your journey progress. Thanks so much, Heidi. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to episode 19 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 19. And since you've made it this far, you must have liked the episode. I'll remind you again that the more ratings and reviews we get gives me leverage to convince higher value guests to do interviews. This in turn brings you even more valuable content. If you can take 60 seconds to leave a review on iTunes, your tiny bit of help goes towards making the show better for you and everyone. It's super easy to do and I'd really appreciate it. Visit sfdnetwork.com review to leave your rating. And as always, thanks so much for your support and help.